We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right Ian Fleming had seen a lot of behind-the-scenes of the intelligence organisations of England and the Americans. He'd seen how they operated at the very top. He'd played a key role in helping the Americans to get their intelligence organisation up and running. But now he was going to do his first work in the field. Then he had to go to the spy training school where secret agents are taught how to kill how to blow up bridges, and how to do all of those other things you've seen in the James Bond movies. And this was for real. Over the spring and summer of 1941, William Stevenson, the man called Intrepid, took Ian Fleming on an extensive tour of the secret areas of his British security coordination operation. As a special treat, Stevenson arranged for Ian to go along on a real Secret Service mission with one of his team when they broke into the Japanese Consul General's office in New York. Conveniently, the Japanese office was located on the 34th floor of the Rockefeller Center, just two floors below Stevenson's office in room 3603. In the 1930s, the Americans had had a lot of success cracking the Japanese diplomatic code that accomplished this through a succession of nighttime burglaries of the Japanese Consulate General's office in New York. Honestly, looking back on what was happening at the Japanese New York Consulate at night, it looks like more work was done there after hours than during the usual working day. Obviously, the security measures the Japanese were taking were, well, inadequate, to say the least. From February 1939, the Japanese changed their diplomatic code. It was used in conjunction with a new encryption machine that was called the Type B cipher machine. The Americans knew it as the Purple Machine. It was designed to achieve the same results as the Japanese Enigma machine. But the Japanese alphabet did not lend itself to being used with that type of machine. Messages had to be first translated from the Japanese syllabic symbols to Western alphabet symbols. Breaking the Japanese diplomatic code was very significant because of messages sent to and from the Japanese ambassador in Berlin, Baron Oshima. Those messages revealed intimate details of Hitler's capabilities and intentions. Moving forward to the future, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, it's interesting to note that the Americans didn't have enough people working on encryption to break all of the Japanese communications leading up to that critical event. The last of those messages sent using the Japanese Navy encryption 
weren't decrypted and translated until September 1945, a month after the war had ended. If all of those messages had been available, there would have been a greater likelihood that the American commander at Pearl Harbor, Admiral Kimmel, would have taken action to prepare for the Japanese surprise attack, at least put them onto a higher state of alert. Conspiracy theories pretty much go out of the window when you know this. But back to James Bond, I mean, back to Ian Fleming, and the British break-in of the Japanese Consul General's office. This operation was carried out over one action-filled night. A janitor at the Rockefeller Centre helped with the break-in. The British agents cracked the safe. They made microfiche copies of the code books. They contained the ciphers that the Japanese had been using to transmit messages to Tokyo by shortwave radio. Before morning, everything had been returned to its exact place and there was nothing to indicate to the Japanese returning to work that day that their office had been broken into. Ian came away exhilarated from this experience of real-life frontline spying. It was probably the most thrilling experience of his life. He knew, though, that for Stevenson, this was just routine. The mission inspired Ian Fleming when he came to write his first James Bond novel, Casino Royale, in 1953. In the Bond novel, James Bond shoots a Japanese cipher expert at the Rockefeller Center through the window from the 40th floor of the skyscraper opposite. It's the first of James Bond's two necessary kills before he could earn his 00 license to kill. Bond goes on to kill the villain of the Casino Royale novel, Le Chiffre. The French agent from the Deuxième Bureau, René Mathis, gives Bond advice, which is to stand him in good stead when he is required to kill others. It explains the making of James Bond and how he's able to kill without descending into a sea of despondency that afflicts other spies like the characters in the John Le Carré novels. He says, When you get back to London, you will find there are other Le Chiffres seeking to destroy you and your friends and your country. M will tell you about them. And now that you have really seen an evil man... You will know how evil they can be, and you will go after them to destroy them in order to protect yourself and people you love. You know what they look like now and what they can do to people. Surround yourself with human beings, my dear James. They are easier to fight for than principles. But don't let me down and become human yourself. We could lose such a wonderful machine. Stevenson allowed Ian privileges far above what you would expect from his rank. He invited him to his penthouse, where he was able to mix with the people at the top end of Stevenson's spying operations. Stevenson's penthouse, incredibly, had a two-storied drawing room with an elegant, enormous fireplace. 
some of the top people behind England's war effort, who were regulars at Stevenson's penthouse, included Baron Ismay. He was one of Churchill's closest military advisers. He was chief of staff to Churchill in his capacity as defence minister. Major General Sir Colin Gubbins, the chief of the Special Operations Executive, which headed up the many covert operations that the British engaged in as part of Churchill's plans to set Europe ablaze after the British evacuation from Dunkirk and near defeat. Lord Beaverbrook, known as the Beaver, another Canadian like Stevenson himself, was a very close personal friend of Churchill's going back as far as World War I. Beaverbrook was widely unpopular including with Clementine, Churchill's wife. It was thought that Churchill liked him for his buccaneering spirit, which Churchill shared. Beaverbrook was often part of Churchill's cabinet, but he was also often resigning from whatever role he'd been given. There was no doubt that the Prime Minister enjoyed his company. They clearly had rapport. There were always gales of laughter when they were together. Churchill had always had a liking for swashbucklers and mavericks, self-made one-man shows. Beaverbrook was all of these things, and so was Stevenson. Stevenson also introduced Ian to a man who stayed in the shadows, pretty much until the day he died, Ernest Guneo. He was President Roosevelt's vital link man between Stevenson's British security coordination Wild Bill Donovan's OSS, and J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Stevenson knew him by the nickname Crusader. Guneo played a vital role in shaping American public opinion, ghostwriting stories for Walter Winchell, the most influential newspaper and radio broadcaster of the period before, during and soon after the war. Cuneo certainly lived his motto, anonymity is freedom. And that's something that many people, many of our celebrities in the spotlights today know about. Cuneo was a close friend of J. Edgar Hoover. He'd done a lot to promote Hoover's image and the image of the FBI. Stevenson's organisation was at first called the British Passport Control, but Hoover suggested the name that it came to be known by, the British Security Coordination. Stevenson's organisation grew to over 2,000 operatives throughout North and South America. Over the following years, the BSC provided the FBI with over 100,000 reports that led to the arrests of dozens of Axis agents. Cuneo played a key role in the deals that led to the Americans handing over to the British 50 World War I destroyers that the British desperately needed as escorts to fight the German submarine menace in the Atlantic. One day, Cuneo was called to a meeting with his good friend, Robert Jackson, the Attorney General to President Roosevelt. Jackson was sad and disturbed, Cuneo noted. He said, this deal with the British to hand over the destroyers went against the American Constitution. Jackson said he was going to have to tell Roosevelt later that day that the handing over of the destroyers was unconstitutional. 
Cuneo knew that Roosevelt wanted that deal to go through. It was important. Cuneo said to Jackson, as he later told the story, I told him not to feel too badly, that by one o'clock that day he would either reverse himself or be asked for his resignation. Jackson and the rest of the cabinet fell into line. It was this sort of inside knowledge about how the world really worked at the top that Ian Fleming was led in on, and it would provide an incredible dimension to his storytelling when he came to write the stories of his secret agent, James Bond. As I said, thankfully, from the Japanese point of view, the Americans didn't crack all of the Japanese naval messages. When my youngest daughter was about four, we took her to Parramatta in Sydney to see the Paul McCartney concert. When the concert was just ending, they played as their final song, Live and Let Die. Massive fireworks engulfed the stage. The noise was unbelievable. My daughter had fallen asleep and not even this woke her up. See how you cope with it just before the next ad break. Stevenson took the initiative to set up a facility where agents could be trained in covert operations. America was neutral at the time, so the ideal place to set it up was in Canada. Stevenson had a Canadian businessman, A.J. Taylor, buy 105 hectares of land near Oshawa in Ontario. The facility that was set up there was known as Camp X, but it was called The Farm, affectionately by those who went there. The CIA copied that name later when they set up a similar facility in Virginia. The setup of the facility was completed on 6 December 1941, the day before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. So it wasn't long before Wild Bill Donovan was knocking at the door, wanting to get in on the act and use the facilities for training his agents. During World War II, 500 agents were trained there. No women. The French Canadians were ideal because of their language skills and cultural familiarity with France. Dropping them into occupied France was easier than sending in someone without those skills. To show you just how secret the operation of this facility was, the Canadian Prime Minister, Mackenzie King, wasn't told about it until well after it was up and running. The camp didn't have a set curricula for students. What students were taught depended on what their assignments were going to be. Some were taught how to destroy bridges, for example, not a skill that everyone would need. And safe cracking, you wouldn't want too many people to learn how to do that, would you? The war will end one day and you don't want a lot of safe crackers out there. Everyone was taught the core skills, though, how to read and make maps, how to move silently, how to hide well and look inconspicuous, how to pick locks. They were taught how to handle and operate firearms, but they weren't taught how to do that in the traditional military way. They needed to be able to do what was called instinctive gunfighting, being able to fire with a moment's notice without assuming a trained stance and without looking down the gun sight. Everyone was taught close combat, especially how to kill silently. 
More specialised training included forging documents, creating and spreading propaganda, and stirring up the local populace against the occupying forces. Camp X had a staff of about 30. The most famous commandant of the camp was Lieutenant Colonel Bill Brooker. He had been a door-to-door salesman for Nescafe. He'd been involved in training agents in the UK already, so his skills were well honed. He used unorthodox teaching methods. Students' classes would be interrupted by unexpected mock gunfights. Then the students were required to remember facts about what had happened, the number of shots fired, by whom, what the attackers were wearing. Students had to undertake mock missions as well, infiltrating guardhouses, sneaking through the damp nights of Ontario. One of the people sent to Camp X by Wild Bill Donovan was Bickham Sweet Escott. He said, Brooker was a born salesman. He was a brilliant and convincing lecturer and an immense fund of stories from the real life of the secret agent to illustrate his points. Most of Brooker's guests, visitors from the American OSS who passed through the farm, according to Bickham Sweet Escott, when they left the farm had a much clearer idea of what secret operations were likely to involve than anything we could give them in Washington. Though Sweet Escort said he couldn't vouch for the exact truth of all of the anecdotes that they were told by Brooker about his exploits in the field. Stevenson decided to send Ian Fleming there to have him put through the course to find out how he would work out with that sort of training. Stevenson decided to send Ian Fleming to the farm in 1942. Stevenson was impressed at how well Fleming did on the course, but Stevenson said he was the top of his section, though he lacked the killer instinct. He'd hesitated during an exercise in shooting a man in cold blood. It seems that Ian Fleming was unlikely to ever earn his own double O status, but then he wasn't a field agent, was he? In the middle of the war, Ian's old friend from Eton and colleague Ivor Bryce and he were both booked to attend a high-level Anglo-American Naval Intelligence Conference in Jamaica. Bryce had a property there called Bellevue. They decided they'd escape there for four days rest and recreation. Bryson wanted to show Ian his magic island. As always happens when you make these plans, everything went wrong. Every day it poured without let-up. The sun never shone. They caught their plane back to Washington. Paul Bryce was thoroughly disgusted. They'd spent their time in his barely furnished plantation house, sipping pink grenadine, the only alcohol that was there, listening to the steadily pouring, thundering rain and dreaming of somewhere that was dry. Ian was quiet on the return flight. Little wonder, thought Bryce. What a disappointment. Then Ian turned to Bryce and said, You know, Ivor, I've made a great decision. When we've won this blasted war, I'm going to live in Jamaica. Just live in Jamaica and lap it up and swim in the sea and write books. 
Bryce promised to help Ian find his place in paradise, Jamaica, after the war. Bryce was true to his word. He scoured Jamaica looking for the right property, but at first to no avail, until an old friend called him and said that he'd found the perfect spot that he'd been looking for. Bryce cabled Ian, addressing him by his wartime rank, the commander, in London, saying he'd found the paradise retreat in Jamaica, if Ian was still interested. Ian replied the next day, Pray pause not, Ian. A few months later, Ian flew out to take a look at the land. It was a 5.7 hectare plot on a hilltop on the north shore of Okabesa. It was located down the coast from Bryce's property Bellevue. The seaward view was perfect. It overlooked an aquamarine bay, a protected harbour, and at the bottom of the hill there was a small sliver of sand which gave the owner of the block a private beach. Fleming fell in love with it. He was soon to call it Goldeneye. That had been the name of an operation that he'd helped to plan in occupied France, and the name seemed just too perfect to let go. He paid £2,000 for the property. He spent the next few months sketching the design of the house he planned to build on blotters in his Admiralty office in London. He was still in the Navy and was waiting to be discharged. All that remained to be done now was to write the stories of his secret agent, James Bond, and to publish his books. Thanks for joining me, Paul, for this Danger Zone program. The next program will be unbelievably awesome. Don't miss it.